what that truly does in our lives. This morning, I want, to, uh, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 7. We're going to continue uh, going through this. We're going to begin to look at verses 36 through 50, an incredible story, a story that we see Jesus being just amazingly generous in. Jesus is a generous, generous God. And here we see an example of that, this tremendously uh, wonderful generosity that he begins to shed in the lives of those around him in this moment. And we see in his giving of generosity, we see two completely different responses to that generosity. We see in one, we see someone who is very passionate, as some of you are. And on the other, we see somebody who's indifferent, as some of you are. Before I go to the scripture, I want us to, what I want to try to do today is I want to try to get us to enter into the story, to become part of it, to really begin to see what's going on so that we can come to a, a depth of reality of what Jesus is doing in this moment and in this story. And I want you to see it. And so I want you to use your imagination with me. I want you to imagine for just a moment, imagine a woman who is living in a small Middle Eastern town. And it's a little town, it's small town, it's very religious, very, very highly conservative, and that's the, the, the culture, that's the context that we find this woman in. And in that place, this woman is a known, notorious, sinful woman who has a terrible reputation. It doesn't really tell us why in the story, but, but possibly, you know, even for today, could she be somebody who's just, you know, sleeping around with just another boyfriend? Could she be one who's been with, you know, she's the girl that's been with all the boys at school? Is she the one who's married and she's cheating on her husband? Or maybe she's the woman who's committing adultery with a married man. Maybe she's a stripper, a porn star, a prostitute. Maybe she's just living around doing what she does for the favors that she needs in life. I don't know, but just know that this, she is known as being a notorious sinner, she, which means that she's unclean, she's defiled, she is dirty. And imagine this woman in this context being surrounded by a bunch of religious men who condemn her. A bunch of religious men who shame her and despise her because of her reputation. And you think it would be difficult for a woman in today's culture to live, or today's Middle Eastern culture, to live in such a climate as this. Imagine this woman that we've just described living in a culture 2,000 years ago. A woman who's living back 2,000 years ago when women could not vote. Back when women could not own property. Back when women were considered to be property. Women were not allowed to testify in court. And so that's this woman. Imagine what her life was like. Imagine how damaged her life was. Imagine how broken she was. Imagine this woman and the brutality of life that she is living in this kind of an existence. Life can be brutal. And imagine the kind of brutality that this woman had experienced in her life. Maybe some by her own choices, maybe a lot not. 
But this is the woman that we come into contact with here in Luke chapter 7. And I want you to walk along with her in this whole story. The story begins like this. In verse 36, we're going to look at that. So it starts off talking about one of the Pharisees. So it's putting this into the context that this is a religious guy. So this is one of the religious guys, and they're asking him, talking about Jesus. So the religious guy is asking Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Verse 37 says, And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiping them with, her, uh, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Will you guys bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, as we come into your word. Thank you. Thank you for bringing light to it. Thank you, Lord, that it is light that would bring darkness into those who are hurting and bound, those who may relate a little too well with this woman, whether it be a male or female, that, that Lord, we, we understand so clearly what she's going through. Lord, for those that are here today in that situation, I pray that you bring them comfort through this story and through this time. And for those who don't understand, I pray that you enlighten them with the understanding that they need, Lord, so that we could walk through this story. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that from the front to the back. Let every ear be open. Let every heart receive what you have intended in this time. Let us receive this sermon today with humility, with a humble heart that's open to receive what you have for us today. Lord, I pray that I not get in the way of what you want to say in the hearts and lives of men and women in this place today. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we had gotten done doing a study over the past few weeks, and we had been we talked about how Jesus had been invited to dine with 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 tax collectors and sinners and uh, with with prostitutes and thieves, and he had he had been invited to come to dinner with people in such a situation as that. And Jesus, you know what? This is the cool part. Jesus did go dine with them. Jesus went and he broke bread with sinners. The pe and honestly, we talked about why, but these were the people that loved Jesus. These were the people that Jesus loved to be with, and these were the people that loved to be with Jesus. These people that for the first time felt this sense of acceptance in themselves. And Jesus, listen, but Jesus never did condone their sin. Please understand, even though he went, even though he dined with them, Jesus never condoned their sin, nor did Jesus ever participate in their sin. He didn't go to do that. He, came, he didn't come to participate with them. He came to give them this option to participate with him. Yet still, the religious people condoned him for that. They said he's a friend of gluttons, he's a friend of sinners, he's a friend of tax collectors and whores. And he was. He was. And Jesus, it's so cool that Jesus in his ministry here on earth, he walked with notorious sinners. And the religious people. He came and loved all. And so the religious people invited him to have a meal with them. The Bible tells us that it was the Pharisee, a religious leader who, who brought him to this, to, brought the invitation to him. 
And I, I shared with first service, you know, one of the things that I found as I've been digging into this gospel of Luke and I've been studying through it, one of the things that I never expected to come about as a theme through all of this is something that did come about as a theme through all of it. And I, I can't help it and share with you, but one of the major reoccurring themes throughout all of this gospel of Luke is how awful religion is, Amen. how cruel religious people are. I mean, it's throughout here, and here, you know, we see it again. And I love this because in Luke's description in the gospel, he describes each and every time Jesus is the hero and the religious people are the villains. I mean, it always goes on throughout the entirety of the gospel here. And this is how Luke continues to tell the story. And Luke has done this deep dive investigation. That's what he's doing. He's gotten testimonies from people. I'm sure he interviewed people that were there. He's interviewed them. He's come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is how he's portraying the circumstances in that day. And so one of the Pharisees comes, this religious leader. The Pharisees were religious leaders that were the teachers of religion. They would have taught and been in charge of, of, of religious doctrine, religious law, and making sure that people had submitted to that. And so one of the leading Pharisees, this religious teacher, invites Jesus to come for a meal. It's, an, it's a closed-door, private invitation that was extended to Jesus. And again, it doesn't tell us why, but I would have to imagine from reading through the scriptures, that their intentions were to interrogate him, not to have fellowship with him, to find something that they could accuse him of, to find something that they could pick up as a rock and throw at him. Just looking for something that's wrong. You ever gone someplace with that attitude, that thought, hey, you know what, I'm just going to go there and find, I mean, it's in our heart. We don't often think it in our mind, but in our heart, you know what? We go in just looking for something to pick apart. Hey, there's a lot of people that come to church that way. And, and you know, again, if that's what you come to church for, you're going to find it. Amen. You know, you've heard the story. Church is not filled with perfect people, and if it was, you just ruined it. So Jesus gets this invitation from the Pharisee and Jesus accepts the offer. I can't imagine why. I mean, if God had made me, you know, Jesus, I, this story probably wouldn't be in the Bible because I don't know that I would have accepted this offer after all they had done to him. But Jesus did. And the way that these dinners worked is different. You know, the way they, they ate, the, what, they, what they did in these times of dinner was different than the way that we do. Unlike our dining, when they came in, the dining room table was down it. It was literally at, at floor level. And what they would do is they would surround the table with all of these pillows. And so everybody would come in and they would lie down and they would lie on one arm and then they would eat. And the meal would take a long time. I mean, the meal was quite an extended period of time. They would relax. It was a time where they, they would just enjoy comfort of each other. They would fellowship and have conversation. And what I want you to see is that when they were lying there, they were all lying there, leaning up against the table on the pillows, and their feet was like in a giant circle. Everybody's feet were sticking out as they were lying there. Now, these were the kinds of parties that women did not get invited to. Women weren't invited to these kinds of theological discussions. And then it says in verse 37, and I love this, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Here comes this woman. 
This woman who is a sinner, her reputation goes before her. She, the, everybody knows this woman because of her reputation. Most commentaries that I read through believed that she was a prostitute. But whatever the case, she was a woman who had, had been with many men, a woman who had done things she should not and, and was not proud of doing, well, a woman who was considered then damaged goods. She was considered destroyed, dirty, defiled. And somewhere, somehow, okay, stay with me here, she hears that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. Somewhere in the street, somewhere she hears, this guy's here, he's here. And something, something promotes her to do the unthinkable. Just, again, I need you to see her. I need you to be here with her. I need you to walk with these you're going through. She hears on the street that, that Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. And she's like, I imagined, again, I'm imagining that she's just overcome with, Jesus, what do I do? She goes home and she's like, what do I do? I need to do something. What do I, what do I have? What am I looking for? I don't even, I don't, she doesn't even know what she's looking for. And she's finally, she's like, I got this here. Let me grab my flask of ointment because it's the most valuable thing that I have. And she takes this, this, this ointment and she's like, I, I don't even know what I'm going to do with it. She probably in her mind thinks, I'm going to go and I'm going to see if I can buy some forgiveness. I'm going to go see if I can trade this for some grace. Let me go find out what I can do. I'm just going to tell, I don't even, she doesn't have it planned out. Please don't, she's not, and I'll show you here in a minute why I don't believe she has this whole thing all figured out. How many of you, when you came to Jesus, had it all figured out? Doesn't happen that way. And so, so she picks up this flask and she, she heads off. And just imagine the walk from her house to the Pharisee's house. Imagine her stomach being turned upside down with anxiety and fear, wanting every step to stop and say, you know what, I can't do this. No, man, I can't. He won't accept me. He won't receive me. I can't do this. Everyone knows who I am. And she's fighting with this whole trip. And she's finally, she's there at the Pharisee's house. She's standing at the door. I wonder how long it took her Standing at the door. Mm. What do I do? Do I knock? And finally, I think she just got all the courage she had and pushed the door open. And this woman who comes to the door, and here she is. I can just see her. She's nervous. She's ashamed. She doesn't want to get the eye contact with anybody. She just, I mean, is overwhelmed and terrified with what they're going to do. What are they going to say? How are they going to treat me? How are they going to, how are they going to do to me again what they've done to me before? And she's shaking, and she's nervous, and she's just probably tied up in a knot. And here is this woman, this sinful woman, standing in the midst of a room filled with the, the, the quota unquote holy men the devout men the religious guys and every one of them they they know her they they know her reputation i wonder if some might have known her all of a sudden the the room got silent What's happening here? Everybody's going, what's going on here? 
and she walks into their meal. She heads into the house. She's the only woman in the room, and she's not invited. And, you, and again, in, in this culture, you did not do that. You did not just walk into someone's home uninvited. You did not walk into the meal as an uninvited guest, as a woman, as a sinful woman. This unholy woman standing in the midst of a bunch of holy men. And this would have been one of those moments when we all have experienced it. It's horrible. That moment of awkward silence. What are we going to do? And they see her come. I, I wondered, you know, this is just my thought. I wondered if they, when they saw her and she started to step in, I wonder if at that moment they got a whiff. A whiff of the perfume that she was carrying. Because it was, it was strong perfume. It was expensive perfume. This perfume that, that she probably had worn to entice men. Some of them may have found the smell familiar. Maybe it was the perfume that she wore to cover up the stench of what she had done. The smell begins to fill this room. In verse 37, it says, it goes on to say, and she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. In verse 38, and standing behind him, standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she begun to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with, her hair, with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. I just, again, put yourself in the position. She walks in, and, and one of the first things she notices is Jesus' feet are dirty. Jesus' feet are dirty. What, what, and, and again, what that would have been was a sign that the people, the, the, those who were uh, the hosts of the party, were inconsiderate and rude. They were, it, was, it was a sign. They were not treating Jesus as an honored guest. That was an inconsiderate, rude thing to do. It was customary. When you had a, 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 a special guest enter your house, you would have a slave or you would have a servant that would wash their feet. Or at the very least, you would offer them a basin of water so that they could wash their own feet and some olive oil so that they could refresh their feet because your feet had been through so much. They wore these open-toed sandals and they walked along paths, paths that were shared with, with multitudes of people and animals. And they were muddied and then dustied and muddied and dusty. And these guys in their open-toed sandals are walking through and stepping in all of this Stuff, the animal feces and the trash, the garbage, the mud, all of it. It would have gotten all, just imagine, all up between their toes and under their toenails. The feet, yeah, feet were gross. And then they're going to go into this di you know, dinner and lie down with their feet out exposed. Where everybody's going to eat dinner looking and seeing what everybody's feet look like. So that, again, is one of the reasons why it was an honorable, it was a considerate thing for the host to do, to have somebody's feet washed or give them a basin so they could at least wash their own feet. They didn't even do that for Jesus. And let me say, they're, they're a lot like 
a lot of people. A lot of people today. And, and listen, I love you all. But a lot of people today are just inconsiderate and rude. I'll say this too. A lot of you are difficult spouses. Not because you're having affairs or beating your wife, but because you're inconsiderate and rude. And that comes from a selfish, self-centered heart. That's how they're treating Jesus. And this woman comes in, and she's completely different. This woman, this sinful woman comes in, and she's thoughtful. She's attentive. She's considerate. She notices that Jesus' feet are dirty, and she does the unthinkable. She comes up behind him. She approaches Jesus. She approaches him. Now again, the Bible does not forbid this. Please understand that. The Bible doesn't for, forbid that. The law does not forbid that. It was culture and religious tradition that would forbid a woman to, like her to approach or touch a man like Jesus. Like the woman with the issue of blood who walked through the community crying out, unclean, unclean, because she was unclean. And what they believed was that a woman who was unclean, if she touched a man that was clean, the one who was unclean would make the unclean, un, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the clean, unclean. That makes sense? Jesus was the first one who came as the one who was clean. And Jesus made it very plain that when he, as the clean, touched the unclean, the clean made the unclean clean. And this is what Jesus did. But here, he, they, this was going on. This was not something that happened in that time. She's approaching Jesus. She draws near to Jesus. And I just think at this moment, I, I, I've never seen anybody that's come to church and, and had an experience like she had that expected it. She came into this thing and she, there was something that started to happen that she did not expect to happen. <laughs> she didn't expect this. And all of a sudden, this woman, the closer she gets to Jesus, the more conscientiously aware she becomes of her sinfulness. She comes and draws close to him. Isn't that true for you and for me? The closer we draw to Jesus, the more we realize our sinfulness. In fact, some of us, the only way we can deal with our sinfulness, if we're not going to take it to Jesus and let him have it, is to push away from Jesus. Because otherwise we're just overwhelmed with this awareness of our sin and I've got to do something with this. And this is what's happening in this woman. The closer she gets to Jesus, the more she realizes He's holy and I'm unholy. He's sinless and I'm filled with sin. He's clean spiritually and I'm unclean. And she's having this revelation. And she begins to weep bitterly. She begins to pour out her heart. She's a crier. Like, she's a crier like some of you. Praise God for that. Amen. Praise God. Martin Luther, I was reading some commentary, and, and Martin Luther called those tears that she was shedding heart tears. See, some of you know that. The feeling of heart tears. 
And, and so th- this woman, these tears are coming out of her heart. And it begins to cleanse her soul. It begins to work. Listen, you know what this is? This is an absolute act of repentance. She is just in this repentant place. She is publicly acknowledging before some of the most hurtful, shameful, degrading, you know, uh, I mean, judgmental guys that there could be, these holy guys. And there she is right there in the midst of the crowd. And she is in this place saying, yes, I know. I am a sinful woman and I am not proud. I have deep regrets for the way that I have lived my life. And she starts just bawling. I mean, the kind of bawling where these tears are just falling down her cheeks. She's just now, her face is red. Snot's coming out of her eyes. Her makeup's all over her clothes. She's just, I mean, bawling. Listen, she is crying so many tears that she, tear, she cried enough tears to actually be able to wash Jesus' feet with them. Man, that is a lot of tears. And that is a broken, humble, repentant, devastated, grieving sinner. And she is right here in the middle of one of the absolute most incredible acts of repentance ever. Look, some of you have never shed a tear over your sin. Maybe she had never shed a tear over any of her sin up till this point. But at this point, I think she's shedding tears for every sin. I mean, she is emptying her heart. And I believe with all my heart that she was not expecting this to happen. She did not go home. I'm going to get my alabaster jar. I'm going to go to the Pharisee's house. I'm going to come in. I'm going to get on my face and on my my knees and my face right before Jesus' feet. I'm going to wash his feet, and then I'm going to take this expensive ointment and pour it over his feet. I don't believe that any of that was something that she had considered. I don't think that she did. I don't think it was something she anticipated or planned on happening. And, And the reason I believe that is this. If she had planned on washing Jesus' feet, I think she would have brought a towel She didn't even bring a towel. She didn't bring a basin of water. She didn't know that they were going to be rude and inconsiderate to Jesus. This all just happened. And she doesn't have a towel. She does not have a towel to dry Jesus' feet. And so she takes her hair and lets her hair down, and she begins to dry his feet with her hair. I love this. Paul says this. Paul says that a woman's hair is her glory. She takes what is glorious and washes Jesus' feet with it. I also find this, that Jesus, our glorious king, in all of his glory, bowed down before the feet of Judas and in glory, washed his feet. But in that day, this was not something that was acceptable. The Talmud, the, uh, the Jewish commentary, it, 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 said that, it says that for a woman to let down her hair in front of other men other than her husband, for a woman to do that was grounds for divorce. 
the rabbis in that day, one of the teachings of the rabbis about this was that for a woman, if a woman was to let down her hair in front of other men, that it was just, it was akin to her taking her shirt off. And that's the way that they looked at this. That's the way this happened. Culturally speaking, this was something completely unacceptable. This was unacceptable behavior. Biblically speaking, she did not break a single law. She did not break a single rule. There was nothing biblically that she was breaking here. I I love this. One of the commentaries I was reading said that her acts were passionate, but not erotic. What a beautiful description of what she's doing. And so she's there. She dries his feet. And then she takes this, this, this ointment was ointment that would have, even in, in that day, very rarely, if it was going to be used to anoint somebody, it would have been something that was used to anoint their head so that that anointing oil would stay with them for, for, for days. But it was never something that would be used for the feet that were just going to go back out into the dirt. But she takes this ointment and she takes it and lavishly pours it over Jesus' feet. I want you to see, this was an an absolute lavish way of worshiping Jesus. With all of her heart, she's worshiping him. This is an act of worship, church. This is, she is actively in the midst of worship. When she falls down at his feet, when she starts to acknowledge her sin, when she's shedding her tears, when she's cleaning his feet, when she's anointing his feet, when she's kissing his feet, this is all an act of worship. This is true worship. The Greek word for worship, part of the definition of that Greek word is to fall down on your face. So biblically speaking, This is an expression of worship because an expression of worship is literally falling down prostrate on your face at the feet of Jesus. And that's what she's doing. She's worshiping him. She's worshiping him passionately. She's worshiping humbly. She's worshiping generously, publicly in front of, and she's worshiping church biblically. This story is a biblical expression of worship. A lot of us have a problem with that. A lot of people today have problem with the passion and the freedom that she has to worship Jesus like that. And let me say, if, that, if, if that's you, you're, you, you have company, you're not alone. Look, at going on in verse uh, 39, it says, and when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, saw this, what was going on, they saw what was happening, he says to himself, realize he doesn't say it out loud, He doesn't say it the way, he doesn't say it in bravery, he says it in cowardice. He says it under his breath. He just begins to mumble something unintelligible, something that is to himself. Not even those who were leaning against him or up close to him would have probably heard a lot of what he was saying because he was saying it to himself. Which again is what religious people will do. But God knows the heart. And so he said to himself, if if this man prophet he would he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him for she's a sinner and so he's mumbling this and then it says and Jesus answered him (laughs) Simon he says I have something to say to you now again I would probably think he doesn't even know that Jesus knows what he just thought to himself and so he gets done and Simon I have something to say to you And he answers, say it, teacher. 
I am here to hear. <laughs> so Simon, the host of this party, I think in his heart, he's thinking to himself, and again, just like, I don't want to just say some of you, I want to say some of us. Because I know I've fallen into some of these places where, you know what, I, I, I've, I've found myself here where the religious people are. And church, this is one of the many, many, many great errors of religion. Religion believes there's only two kinds of people. There's the unholy and the holy. And the religious people are the holy and everyone else is the unholy. And Simon made a decision. I'm in the category of the holy. And this prostitute and Jesus, they're in the category of the unholy. Again, he's filled with pride and arrogance and judgmentalism. And Jesus comes back to him and says, Simon, not only am I a prophet, but I'm going to prove it to you. I know what you just thought, and I know what she has done. And again, let me also say this. There are only two kinds of people. There are only the holy and the unholy. And in the holy category is Jesus alone. And in the unholy category is all the rest of us. Simon had himself and Jesus both in the wrong category. Which again is, is sometimes what in our religious thought, our religious ways in which we fall into that, um, what happens to us. And Simon, he's saying, hey, you know what? She, this woman, she's a sinner. If Jesus was a good man, he would know what she's done. And Jesus says, you know what, I'm not just a good man, I'm the God man, and I know exactly what she's done, and I know exactly what you have done, and you're both sinners. You both have sinned. And Simon, you're a sinner too. See, religious people tend to see other people's sins, but not their own. Religious people tend to think in their heads and judge themselves by themselves and think and, and quietly criticize those who are serving Jesus. Come so easy to begin to look and see people that are serving Jesus and become critical when we're not doing anything except criticizing those who are serving Jesus. This woman, what we see in this story, she was serving Jesus. You know what she was doing? She was doing for Jesus what Simon should have done for Jesus. But Simon, listen, Simon wasn't willing to do for Jesus anything he didn't want to do. He did not want to serve Jesus. This woman, she was serving Jesus. And Simon, all he does is begin to judge the way she's serving him. And sad, but there's a lot of people in church like that. People that live in their head, thinking they're holy, yet sitting back and just quietly criticizing everyone else. Criticizing the way they worship, criticizing the way they serve, criticizing the way they give, criticizing and not participating in any of it themselves. Jesus knows your thoughts, and Jesus knows our hearts. I find that amazing. You know, we've read this story over and over and over again. And for, in, in this, let me just challenge you in this. It's so easy to think, yeah, I'm, 
I'm, I'm like that woman. But I want you to think, man, maybe I'm like that guy. That's that moment of awkward silence. Sorry, but I, again, I love you, and God wants to relate to everyone. Amen? Amen? So the story continues, and Jesus now starts to tell this parable, this story, and, uh, and he has an incredible point. And in verse 41, he says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Again, I read that. It's just so simple. I think Jesus is playing with him a little bit here. I think Jesus is just like, okay, let's bring you down to kindergarten level here. We're going to get into like spirituality 101 here, and I'm going to bring you this absolute basic thing. Okay, Simon, there's two guys. Okay, track with me. Two guys. One owes 50 days wage to this guy, and the other owes 500 days of wage to this guy. This guy comes to both of them and forgives them both because neither of them can pay their debt. He forgives both of them their debt. Okay, Simon. A or B, which one's more grateful for the forgiven debt? And Simon comes back and says, well, the guy with the extra zero. How many of you in here are the guy with the extra zero? And Jesus says, good, Simon, got it right. I just, this is like the simplest parable ever. But what's the point of it? The point is that Simon thinks he only owes a little bit of debt to God, while this woman, she has a lot of debt to God. And Jesus is saying, but if both of you, and you're, both of you have your debts canceled, wouldn't she be more grateful than you, Simon? Let me ask you today, what do you owe God? You know, every month we get a statement of what we owe. Every month we get a credit card bill. We get our house payment bill. We get uh, our student loan bill. We get our car payment bill. And every single month we get this bill telling us what we owe. It is a statement of reckoning. This is where you are. This is what you owe. What if God sent you a bill each month of your debt? What if God every single month sent you a statement that was an account reckoning of what you owed? And on there it's like, hey, you know, um, it says, hey, you didn't give. You didn't serve. You didn't pray. You, you didn't care. You were supposed to speak to that person. The Holy Spirit convicted you. He led you there and you didn't do it. You were supposed to serve. You were supposed to love. And you were too busy with all your own stuff to do it. 
You were supposed to reach out to that person. You were supposed to help them. You were supposed to speak to them. And you didn't do it. You were too busy goofing around on your phone. Searching YouTube. Scrolling mindlessly through Facebook. You didn't even see him. What if God took into account all of your sins, all of the past, all of the present, and all of your future sins? What if God, what if God sent you an account for all of your thoughts and all of your deeds and all of the words that came out of your mouth? What if God sent you a bill for all the sins of commission and all the sins of omission? Everything that you did, everything that you failed to do. What if God sent you a bill every month? What would you owe? What would you owe? How great or how small would your debt be? Because that's Jesus' point. And I know some would think, ah, you know what? He's right. From this point on, I, I you know what? I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to live a good life. I, I'm gonna, I, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. You know what? You might, you might be able to live a good life, but you'll never live a perfect life. And even if you did live a perfect life from here on out, that won't do anything. That'll take care of you adding to the debt you already have, but it won't do anything to take care of the debt you already have because you can't pay that debt back by doing what you're supposed to do anyway. So what Jesus came, what Jesus says is I have come to forgive debt. I've come to forgive debt. Isn't that what Jesus prayed? Father, forgive us our debts. Forgive us our debts, Father. That's what Jesus was praying. But church, I want you to hear me. Jesus is the only means by which our debts are paid. There is no other way. He's the only way. There isn't a bunch of roads. There's one. His name is Jesus. And he's the only one that can forgive us of our debts. And Jesus, ultimately, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to substitute himself for you. He's going to go hang on that cross in your place because you're the one who deserved it. You're the one that's in debt to God, not Jesus. But Jesus took your place and he went to the cross and he died for you. He substituted himself for you and for your place. He died for your sins. And the religious people are the ones who murdered him. But Jesus was not going to let that be the end. Jesus went into the grave, and at the third day, he arose from the grave. He is alive today, and he came back out of the grave to mark your debt paid. I, I love that. Jesus marked our debts paid. He came to pay your debt to God. And what religion wants to do is religion wants to tell you how you're supposed to pay your debt to God. Jesus is our God, and he, and he alone can pay our debt. And Jesus says, with the stamp on your life, paid in full. Yes. Paid in full. Every other religion wants to tell you what you should do to pay your debt back. They want to tell you, you need to go to purgatory and suffer. You need to venture to Mecca. You need to go, you know, and live multiple reincarnated lives so that you can finally get a good one. 
You need to be the one who joins this religion and, and, and puts this on your, you know, your, your placard. You're the one that needs to give. You're the one that needs to do, to go. No! No, that is not it. Look, in all of this, he's saying, Simon, Simon, you may think your debts are small. You may think her debts are large. And there are people in here who think that. There are people who think, well, I'm not that big a sinner. I've never done anything that bad. Man, compared to what a lot of people have done, I'm pretty good. I only got a little bit of debt. That little bit of debt is enough to send you to hell. It is enough for you to go to hell because the justice of God, listen, the justice of God says every debt, every single debt must be paid in full. And either you will pay that debt back to God in hell or you will let God pay that debt for you at the cross of Calvary. But either way, God is just he is holy, he is good, he is righteous, and he will have justice. It's the only way he can still be good. But dying on the cross, in our place, by going to the grave that we should have gone to, church, he's proving himself to you and I that he loves you, he cares for you, he is gracious. He is good. He is accepting. He is a God with mercy and his kindness will endure forever. And he is the God who went to the grave and over your life, he wants to stamp in the blood of the lamb paid in full. Have you let him? Have you received him? Worship team, would you come back up? Will you all bow your heads with me? in church I want to say this and I want, I'm going to say this because I love you and this is a biblical statement but some of you are going to go to hell is it what I want absolutely not that's why I'm being forward with you here but if you read Matthew chapter 7 you will find that there are many who will stand before him one day and they won't enter into the kingdom of heaven he'll say away from me you evildoer I knew you not so there are people in church that will go to hell and some who will suffer the conscious torment that was not intended for you but will experience that place of separation from God and for many, it's because you didn't think you were that bad. You just didn't think your debt was that big. Didn't think it was that big a deal. Come on, lighten up, Pastor. No, I refuse. I will not lighten up. Because he's made another option for us whether your debt is little or your debt is large for those who come to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior who receive by grace the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in their lives and receive him as the Lord and Savior of their life your debt is 
canceled. And in the blood of the Lamb, He takes the stamp and puts over the temple of your life, paid in full. Undullable. Unremovable. Paid in full. And on the cross, Jesus said this. He said these three words. It is finished. There is nothing else you can. There is nothing else you need to do to see your sin forgiven and to see restoration with a holy God who loves you, who died for you, and who came back again. And today, He's extending His hand to you saying, come to me. I know you're weary. I know you're heavy laden. I know you're burdened with your sin. Listen, it's time to humble yourself and to bow yourself at the feet of Jesus and to worship Him with all of that that He has done in you. To come to Him because your debt has now been paid in Jesus' name, I pray for those, Lord God, who do not know what that is to be forgiven, to be fully cleansed, that maybe we've walked through religious circles that have told us things that were not contrary, but just different than what the Word said, didn't give us the fullness of grace, but tried to tell us what we needed to do. Lord, it's not about what we do, it's all about what you did made a way not because I deserve it while I was still in my sin Jesus you went to the cross for me maybe today you need to make this the first day of the rest of your new life to receive the stamp of God that says paid in full he's making that available to you right now he's extending his hand saying come receive what he has for you and approach him he's not mad at you he's not he's not mad at you he is deeply passionately in love with you he misses you he longs for you will you come to him will you receive him some of you in this place that find yourself wrapped up into the religiosity that we read about in this story and say I need to repent of that I, I know, like Simon I, I may not see my sins as big but man I see them as keeping me Lord apart from you and I don't want that in my life and I'm just going to lay that down I'm going to put it Lord God where it belongs I'm going to put it at your feet either way he says come to me all, all, does that mean you have to come to this altar? No, it does mean you get to come to the altar, and if you need that, don't leave this place without it, you find your place, you come find a place at the feet of Jesus, and worship Him that way. Make it personal between you and him. Right here in the midst of the congregation. Hum-
find a place. Find a place to get before Jesus. We've offered that. Now it's between you and him. God created and made for you to do it. God bless you. Have a beautiful day today.